Hello and welcome to this week's Key Voices, conversations with folk in and around education. I'm Caroline Doherty. Today we're talking to Dr Helen Kelly, retired school principal, researcher and writer. Helen and I have a conversation about school leader well-being, which is her area of interest and research since retiring. It is fascinating to hear Helen's reflections on her own career and what she's learning from talking to other head teachers and principals. She's really honest about the impact that stress has had on her own life and her own physical health. The fact that sometimes leaders feel the need to wear a mask and hide their vulnerabilities and the, the positive things that can happen when people are open about their their needs and vulnerabilities. She also shares some really practical ideas that governors can use to get a handle on how best to support and retain their school leaders and and the real value of of doing that and keeping those people in in their jobs and functioning well. Hope you enjoy this episode. There's a lot of really interesting ideas and reflections in it. As ever, I'd just like to remind listeners that this podcast is an opportunity to open up debate and discussion around issues. The views my guest and I are about to express are not the view of the key. For in-depth authoritative articles on the latest issues in education, check out thekeysupport.com. Hello. Today, I am joined by Dr. Helen Kelly, who is a retired school principal, researcher and writer. Hi there, Helen. Hi there, Caroline. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? Really well, thank you. Well, uh, there's a lot of things we're going to try and cover today because you have such a, a rich range of experience. But can you tell us a little bit about about your your career to date? Sure, yeah. Um, Well, one of the things that's interesting about me is that I wasn't always in education. So for 10 years uh, before I went into education, I was actually a solicitor. And I acted for trade union members who had accidents at work or industrial diseases. And I think that's probably where my interest in workplace well-being began. Um, But then after doing that for 10 years, in 1999, I requalified to become a teacher, primarily so that I could travel and work. Um, My husband was an engineer, and those two careers of engineer and solicitor didn't lend themselves very well to traveling and working around the world. So we both actually qualified to become teachers. And so my first teaching job, actually, was in Cairo, in Egypt. Yeah, which was a bit of a baptism by fire, to be honest. Um, And then I was um, a primary school class teacher um, in Cairo, um, and then in Kuwait, and uh, for two years um, in the UK. So in my whole career in education, spanning 21 years, I only actually worked in the UK for two years. Um, and then I got leadership quite early after I'd been a class teacher for six years. I became a principal. And I was very lucky that I didn't go through that process of assistant head teacher, deputy head teacher, and all of that stuff. I applied for a job um, at a school in Bangkok and um, I was appointed as a class teacher in year five. Um, Unfortunately, got the opportunity to meet the head of school because my husband and I were having a year off to travel at the time. And 
for some reason, he was impressed with me. And about three months later, he sent me an email asking me if I wanted to be head of Key Stage 2, which was um, a non-class-based um, role. I've got no experience to draw on. I think I was probably pretty terrible at it that first year. Um, and since then, I've been effectively a principal in three schools. So first of all, there in Bangkok, where I was for six years. Um, and then in Berlin for three years, where I was a principal as a primary school in a large international school. And then most recently um, in Hong Kong, Canadian International School of Hong Kong, where I was the lowest school principal uh, for four years. And that was a very large school. I was responsible for over a thousand students and about 130 staff. Um, and then unfortunately, in the summer of 2019, I was diagnosed with an occupational burnout. Um, and at the same time, um, I'd been having a lot of chest pains. And after some investigations, it was discovered that I had heart disease. Um, and so after discussing it with my husband, we took the decision that we would retire early. So in the summer this year, I retired. Uh, from my work in schools, and I'm now living in lovely North Wales, waiting for COVID to pass so that we can go off and travel. Um, and I'm pursuing my interests in independent research um, and writing and speaking, mostly on the subject of um, school well-being, with a particular focus on school leader well-being, which is a real interest of mine. Wow, gosh. Um... Thank you for thank you for sharing that and um, yeah really um, uh, sort of um, you know sharing your kind of personal uh, journey journey there with regards to your own health and and the importance of of well being. I'm sure listeners because we talk a lot about um, English schools on the podcast, but listeners would be interested to know more about your experience of of teaching in that kind of international uh, context and, and what the sort of main differences and similarities are um, uh, to, to UK schools? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I'd just like to pick up on what you said about sharing personal details. You know, I think it's really important that we do that. Um, obviously, when you're in the field, um, you're very concerned about your job or your next job. And you, it's hard, especially for women leaders, to show any weakness or vulnerability. And so sometimes we're not as honest as we maybe should be about our vulnerabilities and our health. And so I've taken it upon myself as this kind of champion of school leader well-being to make sure that I'm very honest with everybody about what happened to me, um, because I think that that encourages other people to do the same. Um, but it also helps people to understand the perspective that I'm coming from. Absolutely. And it's that, that powerful impact that you have as a leader on people, whether that's conscious or unconscious, because they are looking to you as some kind of example. Maybe they want to follow or maybe they don't want to follow. But, um, you know, there's been quite a lot that I've seen lately on social media about sort of why do we fetishize working really hard? Why is it seen as a sort of badge of honor that we've been up all night or we haven't had a break for however long, like, why do we sort of celebrate that rather than questioning, you know, why Absolutely. somebody thinks that's necessary? And, you know, what happened to me kind of came out of the blue in a sense because I have lived an exemplary life. 
lifestyle for you know the last 25 years i've been vegetarian or vegan for the last 25 years um i you know my weight is is low um i'm healthy i feel good and the truth is that that stress has had a massive impact on my physical health and i think it's important for people to know that stress can have that it isn't just about exercise and diet um you know i what spent many years wondering I wonder what kind of effect this stress is having on me. And then suddenly I found out. Um, and so, it, you know, it's a hidden, heart disease is a hidden thing. Um, and so I think it's important that people understand that stress does impact your physical health. It's not just a pretend thing that really does. You know, there's plenty of medical research to show that. Anyway, to move on to your question about international schools. Yeah, I was thinking about this in preparation for the podcast. And it's a really difficult question to answer because the truth is that international schools are not one thing. They're actually very varied. The curriculum that they teach is very different from school to school. The size of schools is very different. The, the student population is very different. Um, their financial status is different. Some of them are not-for-profit schools, whereas some of them are proprietary-owned schools that are run for a profit. And the quality of the experience that you have as an educator or leader in those schools varies enormously, as does the pay and conditions. And so if any of the listeners are thinking about, mm, maybe that's something I'd like to try, I'd absolutely encourage them to do so because, you know, my husband and I have had a wonderful life for the last 20 years working in international schools. But it really does pay to do your research and, you know, to understand that you might not get, get it right the first time. Um, I think that most international schools, although not all, are all through schools. So this is a major difference between working in a school in England and working in a school overseas, um, is that you'll be in a, usually a bigger school and you'll be with an early years, usually primary school and secondary school all the way through which I find really quite stimulating, um, you know, being in that environment with, with children and young people of such a wide age range, but also working alongside colleagues who actually teach up in secondary school. You know, you, you know I'm sure you can remember, you, as a primary school teacher in, in England, you, you, know, you go to the staff room and there's usually, what, seven or eight of you? And in the old days, when I used to work in the UK, you know, there'd be six teachers, they were all female, and there'd be one man, and he was the head. And that was the kind of old-style way it was done. When you work in an international school, you'll, you, know, you may have 200 colleagues, and they'll be from all over the world. And it, that's really quite a stimulating environment to work in. I think that in good international schools, the setup there is very similar to fee-paying schools in England. So you have highly engaged pupils, but you also have parents with very high expectations. And that's where a lot of the stress comes from. Mm. Um, you know, on the whole, good international schools are very well resourced. You get very good professional development and a good package. And what's exciting for me or has been exciting for me over the last 10 years, especially, is the high level of innovation I think many international schools around the world are really on the cutting edge of education, much more so than you would see in the domestic market in England or the US, for example. 
But some of the other things that maybe people, you know, wouldn't consider um, if they don't have experience of international schools is obviously there are a lot of cultural differences and that can be very stimulating working with people well first of all living in a different culture mm. working with people from different cultures uh, but it's also very challenging because our ideas about what education is for and what schools are, should be like vary very differently from culture to culture um, leading in an international school is also very demanding because you don't have any local authority support. You're completely isolated. And although you have accrediting bodies that come in and accredit you, a little bit like Ofsted, so that parents will know that you're an excellent school, um, you don't really get much external support unless you pay somebody to come in and do that for you. So it can be quite isolating. And then I think probably for me, and this has formed the basis of a lot of my own research into well-being, is the biggest difference is that as a leader, you are responsible for a community who are mostly away from home. Mm. So I'm not just talking about kids and their parents, but I'm talking about your staff as well. And so most of them don't have the normal support network of family and friends around them that you would see if you were working in a school in England. And so therefore, the school community takes on a much greater significance than it does here at home. And what that means for the principal or the head is that you're effectively responsible for the well-being of possibly thousands of people, which, you know, which is incredibly demanding. Um, and I think that in my, uh, my doctoral research from back in 2014-15, the major themes that were coming through from the school leaders I interviewed then about the reasons, um, you know, that the impact of leading in international schools on their well-being was the emotional demands that leading staff and parents primarily, all adults, not kids, kids are easy, but in the international school environment, being responsible for and leading other adults is actually very challenging. And that's where a lot of the stress comes from. That is really interesting. I hadn't really thought about it that way. That fact that, as you say, so many people so far from home and the school community becomes just that bit more vital to them. And I'm, I'm interested, obviously, you say that there, you know, quite a lot on that all through model, but presumably there is a great deal of churn and, you know, children and families are, are, are coming and going at lots of different, different points. And, 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 and again, t you know, teachers may, may only want to be there for a couple of years before moving on. And then there must be quite a lot of movement within yes, that that's group. Very, that's very astute. Actually, the two factors that, that came out of my research um, from 2014-15 that make international schools different in the sense of stress compared to schools at home. One was the cultural differences, but the other was this community and constant transition. Now that varies from school to school, and you may, may well get some international schools where actually the majority of their student population are from the home country. Mm. Uh, and it's just really a way to have fee-paying education that's in an English medium. Um, but, but most of them, when I worked in Kuwait, for example, I would have said 90% of our kids were from Kuwait. 
Um, but then there will be other schools where you might have 50 to 75% of your kids who are expats. And certainly the vast majority of your staff will be expats. Now, again, a good school, you don't have a lot of churn of staff. In my last school in Hong Kong, it was somewhere between 6 and 10 to 12% a year, which is very low. But in other schools, you could get as much as 25% turnover of kids and 25% turnover of staff every year. And so you've got the challenges of, you know, starting afresh every year with new staff. But what you also have is um, the, the challenges of all these people within your community that you're responsible for going through this transition curve, you know, where there's been a lot written about transition and the psychology of transition and how when you first arrive, you go through the honeymoon period and then suddenly after about six weeks, you kind of hit the, you know, the kind of, oh my God, what have I done? And, it, it, you know, and then, of course, when people are going through challenges in their personal lives, they don't have anyone to turn to. I can, um, can honestly not remember the number of times, I couldn't count the number of times, that I have been the first person that someone has come and told that they've just heard that one of their parents passed away or that they've miscarried a baby or something like that, you know? Um, and so a large part of your role is being there for people. Um, the constant box of tissues on the, you know, on the desk, um, because you're the auntie, effectively. And so you're trying to build a professional relationship with people where you're responsible for their performance management and you're responsible for discipline, disciplinary issues. But then side by side with that, you're trying to show a soft side and a supportive side to people where they know that they can come to you and offload about their personal lives. And that is, a very very bizarre situation to find yourself in very challenging gosh yeah it really sounds it and um as you say you you've done um a lot of research into this area of of well-being and and you you've been doing a lot of your survey and research work on this kind of international scale and what are some of the things that you're you're learning through that yeah, I mean, my first research goes back, as I said, to uh, my doctoral thesis in 2014-15. It was published 2017. Um, and then very recently, in October of this year, um, I did a survey with school leaders around the world to try to get some hard data about the experiences through managing the COVID crisis, because all everything we had was only anecdotal. Mm -hmm. So I had the very surprisingly, within the space of three or four days, 721 people from around the world took part in that survey. And the things that I've found over the last five to six years are that actually the issues facing school leaders around the world are very similar. Even though their contexts are quite different, the issues that they face, the challenges and demands they face are actually very similar. Um, there are very many broad themes. Um, I think it's it's you know, correct to say that generally speaking, school leadership is becoming increasingly demanding around the world. Um, and that a large percentage of school leaders are struggling to cope with the demands that are placed on them. You know, the role of the school leader has changed a lot over the last 10 to 15 years. Um, you know, and that would be a whole podcast in itself as to the way in which school leadership has changed. But the role is now much bigger than it used to be. And the emotional um, elements of the role 
I mean, we may go on to talk about that later, the kind of, you know, mental health issues in schools and things like that. What I've also found is that um, these kind of stresses really are impacting on the ability of school leaders around the world to do their jobs well. Definitely even more so impacting on their personal lives and probably more than anything else, impacting on their health. It's interesting that in my research back, you know, five or six years ago, when I asked the question, I have come close to breaking point at some time. I was really shocked to find 57% of respondents answered they strongly agreed or agreed that they had come close to breaking point. But very interesting, in the research that I conducted last month, 70% said in the last year, in 2020, as a result of COVID, they have close to breaking point at some time. Now, obviously, there's going to be a response bias there. People are more likely to get involved in a survey like this if they're feeling stressed. But nevertheless, that's high. And it doesn't vary that much across the world. You know, the, the pressures that people are feeling are the same. I think what I've learned as well, and this is, you know, what I'm working on at the moment, what I'm kind of dedicating my time to now I'm retired from schools, is that school leaders want and need to feel that they're not alone and that they're not failing because they're struggling. This is how I got into being interested in this, you know, back in 2012, was because I moved to a new school in a new environment and found that the skills that I developed in my previous school were not transferable. And I found myself struggling as a leader. And I didn't realize that that was normal and it was what everybody experienced. And as soon as I started to understand that, I felt better. So I want leaders to know that they're not alone and that they're not failing. This is a normal part of leadership. And I think probably the last thing that's common is that school leaders around the world need governments, first and foremost, but also parents, staff, and boards of governors or boards of directors or trustees to understand what their role involves better and to provide them with more support. And I think that that's why I have so many people reaching out to me on a weekly basis is because I'm a person involved in school leader wellbeing who's been a school leader myself and understands. Whereas I think that most people, if you have not done the job, you don't really understand. So many people asked me over the years when I was a school leader, so what do you do? <laughs> you know, what is your job? And I think most people don't understand what it involves. Um, and so what school leaders need, first and foremost, is for government and other stakeholder groups to understand the role better because they can't support if they don't understand. So I think that's what I've learned on the whole. Great stuff. Um, a lot <laughs> by the sounds of it. Um, and we just touched on um, governing boards there and, and thinking about the sort of governing board's role in, in, in supporting head teacher and also staff well-being. Um, you know, a lot of the conversations that I've had with people involved in governance definitely saying that this is something that they kind of worry about, but sort of why and how should they make it a kind of strategic priority and, and what are the right questions to ask and things to do to actually make an impact rather than just having it something that they're vaguely concerned about? Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, well, I think it's easy to make a case for why this is important from a strategic perspective. There's plenty of research from both sides of the Atlantic to show that the head teacher is, sec is the second most important factor to successful pupil outcomes after teacher quality. So teachers are important. And then the next most important thing is head teachers. And we know that stressed leaders, not just in schools, but in any organization, are more likely to underperform in their jobs. There's plenty of research to tell us that. And they're more likely to burn out. And anyone who's stressed or burnt out in any career, following any career path, is much more likely to leave their current role or leave the profession altogether. Mm. We know already, don't we, that there's, there's a crisis of head teacher recruitment and retention. And that isn't just happening in England or the UK, that's happening around the world. I think also what people might be surprised to hear is that there's also a lot of research to show that the stability of school leadership, i.e. the number of years that the head teacher is in their role in their school, actually impacts on a number of really key things. It impacts on test and exam results, first and foremost. Yeah, that's the bottom line, isn't it? Um, and so what we know from the research is that when a principal or head leaves the school, there is more likely to be a dip in results. And some of that reason is connected with when a head leaves, leaves the school, staff are also likely to leave the school. Um, but there's also another range of factors that are at play there. Also, what I find quite interesting, and it makes me smile because I've been someone who's been involved in change leadership for the last 15 years, is that when a school leader leaves a school, when, the, when leadership isn't stable and there are heads coming and going, it's much, much more difficult to successfully implement school improvement plans. And the reason for that, Michael Fullan, who's a very um, eminent researcher and writer on school leadership, says it's literally because teachers just wait out the head teacher and think, we don't need to change, we'll just wait for them to leave. <laughs> yeah. So actually, what I'm trying to say there is that it's really important for governors to ensure that they keep hold of their head teachers because if they don't, there's a whole range of things that will be impacted. But the bottom line is, is results. And the way to hold on to your head teacher is to make sure that you're attending to their well-being. Um, and so really, there are plenty of reasons why governors should treat their head, but also their teachers, like a valuable asset to be taken care of. You know, if you think about the amount of money that premiership football teams have invested in those players and how well they look after them because they're, you know, protecting their investment, that's how we should think of school leaders. Not that we sell school leaders for £100 million. Ensure you know, <laughs> their legs and things. <laughs> pretty expensive to recruit a new head teacher. And as I've said, when we is unstable all kinds of things can go wrong but also better the devil you know than the devil you don't know as well and every time you recruit a new head teacher there's always a risk that it, that it might go wrong 
Now, how, how, sorry, I'm really interested to know with that, um, you know, with those governors, what, what can they practically do around, um, you know, you were speaking earlier about making the job more, more manageable, if you like, and, and kind yeah. of smaller, or, or, or is it about the kind of conditions of, of, of employment? What, what kind of levers can, can kind of governing boards pull? Okay, well, I think it's important to know, first and foremost, that every head is different in the same way that every school is different. And I think that one of the problems that's occurred as governors are seeking advice um, from local authorities and so on about the ways to deal with this is that they're just given this one-size-fits-all approach and one size doesn't fit all. I had a governor say to me recently that they'd reached out to their head to suggest that, uh, that they, as the chair of governors, took over um, the uh, agenda for the governors' meetings. And the head was really offended. And, you know, that's my job. And I've always done that. And, and she felt that she just got off on the wrong foot. But that's because that's what someone had advised that, that she should do. So I think, first and foremost, governors need to understand that there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. And the single most important thing you can do is ask your head what they need, rather than jump into conclusions about what they need. But I think a starting point, and probably the single most important thing, is about the provision of time. Time is everything to head teachers. And what my research has shown, both back in 2015 and in 2020, is that head teachers, principals around the world don't have enough time to attend to their own needs. And so asking your head, um, would it be possible for us to find a way for you to work at home one day a week or one day a fortnight? Just gives you a little bit of breathing space, you know, a bit like what's been happening, you know, with all our Zoom meetings in pyjamas. Um, can governors offer their head time off in lieu? Um, as recovery days when they've worked a lot of evenings. I know when I was a principal, those pinch points during the year were always when there were several evening events over a period of a week or a fortnight. And it was really hard to recover from those. And you would come into school and you would be below par. Also, can you offer special paid leave days or sabbaticals to allow time for heads to become re-energised? rather than just waiting for them to burn out and leave and then having to replace them with somebody else? Can you reduce the amount of evening commitments or encourage heads to allow others to attend meetings or events in their place? Now, I know we have to be careful with this because deputy heads and assistant heads and teachers, senior teachers, are also very stressed. But actually, many are really looking for the opportunity to be empowered and they want to take on more. It's good for their CV. It's good for their career. And so, you know, encouraging your head to allow other people to come in and, and distribute those kinds of um, responsibilities a bit more. So I think there's a whole bunch of stuff there around time. Then I think there's another bunch of stuff around encouraging the culture of self-care so that governors are expecting self-care to be the norm and that removes the guilt and shame that heads feel about needing to take time to attend to their own needs. So emphasising for them that this is not selfish, 
but actually it's for the benefit of the school that they take care of themselves because you can't pour from an empty cup. And when you're supporting all of these other people, taking time for yourself is important. There's another thing that I only learned very recently from a psychologist who I Zoomed with um, from South Wales, who told me there's this thing called contagion theory. And what that means is that whatever mood we are in as a leader rubs off on the people around us because we mirror the behavior of the other people around us. And so if you as a head are um, energized, positive, happy, then the people around you are more likely to be that. So caring for yourself and prioritizing your own needs will mean that you're happier and more positive and more energized and that will be contagious to the people around you. And I think maybe two other things. Um, one is looking at what kind of CPD can be offered and thinking about more what I call whole leader CPD. So a lot of CPD is focused upon school improvement, um, but looking at things like crisis management training, um, CPD for supporting the emotional needs of others, identifying mental health problems um, among your staff, for example, and CPD on how to take care of yourself. So stress management, active coping strategies, that kind of thing. And finally, and this does cost money, um, it's finding a budget for professional coaching. Professional coaching, you know, whether that be executive coaching or wellbeing coaching, is really, really effective. And there are some great practitioners um, in England who do this. And if that's not possible, then finding ways for governors, governors finding ways to forge links with other schools so that they can take the initiative in developing networks of heads for peer coaching purposes so that heads can be reaching out to each other, seeking support and coaching each other. And I think that that's something that governors in collaboration with local authorities and possibly even trade unions could be doing more of. Yeah, sort of in a kind of almost informal supervision model necessarily rather than actually having the kind of full coaching behind it. You could see that there would be would be a benefit to to to, to that kind of um, connection and being able to have a kind of warts and all conversation with a peer. Absolutely. And you know, all of the research that comes from all of the fields that you can possibly imagine in connection with well-being all points to social connectedness being the single most important thing that keeps us well and happy. And actually, when we're socially connected and not lonely, we're also even likely to live longer. There's a significant amount of research on this now. And the worst thing that can happen to a head teacher is to become isolated. And so finding ways to connect and, you know, you don't necessarily need to have um, professional coaching uh, training, but even just doing a bit of well-being coaching with a couple of other heads in the, re in the area, you know, in your village or town or whatever. And um, it doesn't have to be even focused upon leadership. It can be focused specifically upon well-being. Mm. You know, what are we struggling with? What can we do about it? What are you doing about this? You know, so absolutely, as the single biggest priority, avoiding isolation and loneliness in the role. Um, and 
given that you you, you had um, a career sort of outside of teaching before you joined join the profession um are there any sort of learnings from kind of industries um outside education that 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 could be that could be useful i think sometimes governors you know don't necessarily know what's what's possible or, or don't know how to sort of innovate within within this the the school setting on this on this problem and then it can end up being you know um chocolate bars and yoga classes or something like yep. that that isn't very meaningful because they don't have the budget or these sorts yeah. of things absolutely i mean i think of chocolate bars and yoga classes as wellness mm. not well i am actually a qualified yoga teacher and so, you know, I'm nothing into, wrong with yoga. It's not, yeah. <laughs> I do all of that stuff too, but yeah. it's not the same thing as well being. Well, you make me smile when you say that actually about <laughs> outside of teaching because, you know, let's face it, um, there's a whole world out there um, where, you know, most organizations, even reasonably small ones, will have an HR department whose responsibility it is to address all of these things. And, you know, whether they're big or whether they're small, most companies these days outside of schools would probably start off with something like a well-being audit, you know, where there's some kind of questionnaire and um, those people that would be happy to talk face-to-face in an interview, um, you know, discuss what they think the well-being needs are, you know, not just themselves, but generally within the organisation. And then there would be the development of some kind of well-being action plan. And then there would be some kind of budget underpinning this to make sure that the action plan isn't just a tick box exercise, but it's actually something real. And there would be research on the part of the HR team at what kind of professional development was available to send people out on, or even better, to bring somebody into school um, to work with, um, you know, with the team. So there's a whole, you know, there's a whole genre of this kind of workplace well-being specialist these days. Um, it's interesting because I've done a bit of that work myself over the last few years. And, you know, you go into some schools and you see these teams. I've, the most interesting work I've done actually have been with middle leaders. And you see these teams of people who are so desperate for somebody to care for them. Because they've been working in the school for five years and no one's ever shown them any care or love whatsoever. And they're so hungry. And I've had people weep openly at the end of, you know, a three-hour workshop that finally, thank God, someone is coming in and they want to help us, you know. So I think um, there are certainly many strategic approaches to this, um, which you know, are, are really about laying a foundation of finding out what the needs are within the school first and then being more strategic in developing action plans. But it cannot just be a tick box exercise. It has to be something that's real and active upon. And I think, you know, that, that budget question is is a difficult one. But, um, you know, the, the cost of not doing these things, and as you say, um change change in um personnel if 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 it comes to that or say you don't um have your head teacher take their you know some some planning time from home of the week or recovery time from events and then they're off sick 
because exactly. they've you know picked up a bug or they're stressed you know so exactly. it, or they have burnout like me you know and I was off work for the last six weeks of the school year and that was not very easy for my team to manage and then came back in in August and said actually I'm leaving you know so money needs to be ring fenced for these things and it doesn't have to be a huge amount you know, there's a there's lots that you can do. Like I said, you know, just establishing networks for peer coaching purposes is actually really cheap, if not free. Mm. Uh, and it's you know just finding ways for people to listen. Listening is free, you know. Indeed, indeed, and. Um, so we've been sort of thinking there about a governing body that sort of wants wants to do something about well-being but isn't quite sure where to start. But let's flip it round. What if you're a head teacher and or a principal and and you kind of want to get the board's attention on this yeah. and they're not yeah. quite getting it? <laughs> what yeah, would I you think, suggest? Yeah, I mean, I think I covered all of the reasons why and I mm. think that they need... It's It's difficult and I've had... The reason I brought this up earlier about being a woman leader is because I have had a few people bring this up with me recently. Um, I did um, a Zoom professional development workshop session with a bunch of Montessori, Montessori school leaders in the USA about a month ago. And I talked with them about advocating for themselves with their boards of governors and trustees. And two of them said, I just don't feel that I can do that as a woman leader. They're already... I know they're, all, they're already expecting me to be weak. And if I'm the one who goes to them and says, well, you know, I have well-being needs, um, and then my name will be mud, um, you know, it, within the kind of field, people will get to know, oh, she was the one that said she needed help with her well-being. But I think we have to try and get past that. And I think it's using all of the, that research. And one of the things I'm hoping to do in the near future is to put together a you know, a fact sheet that um, head teachers can just download from my website that has the key points on how they advocate for themselves with governors, basing basing it in all this research I was discussing earlier. You know, all the all the things that can go better in a school if if the school leader um, is not not overwhelmed with stress, and all the things that can go wrong when they are, and what the research search says. I mean, who can? You can refute the research, it's there, you know, it's solid. So I think that's probably the best way is to go to the governors and say, well, you know, I'm, I'm doing okay, but I could be doing better. And if I had more energy and I was less overwhelmed, I think it would benefit everyone. And here's the research to support that. And go to them with some ideas of what we want, some practical ideas, and try to be realistic about the cost. But also don't be... Um, don't be too timid in advocating for what you need because, um, you know, well, if the governors say no, that tells you something, doesn't it? And then you have to, is this the place where I want to be for the rest of my career? You know? No, exactly. Good, good question. And are there any specific times when, um, you know, you were leading schools that you, that you got the kind of right kind of support from your, your board? Can you hear me smiling? <laughs> yeah, the answer to that is no. And I think I've never had it. And I think that that's why I became interested in this in the first place. You know, um, I think when I was in my first school in Bangkok, it was not as demanding um, a role. Um, and 
I don't think I suffered quite as much. Um, then when I moved um, into my two other roles, I didn't find that there was that support, no. And that was why I started to get interested in this. And I think it's interesting to note as well, there's some recent research, which I read, I think, on the TS, but it may have been on the NAHT's website, I can't remember. But there is recent research to show that 80% of chairs of governors think that they're supporting staff well-being, but only 50% of teacher governors agree. Yes. So there's definitely some kind of distance there between what chairs of governors think they're doing and what is actually happening. And I do think that we need to acknowledge, and it's interesting because I've had a chat on social media today with a, a new chair of governors, that chairs of governors are also very busy people and they are also very stressed, especially at the moment. And they are volunteers and they're often holding down a job and they've got families and things as well. Um, and so we need to bear that in mind. And I think that's why schools should all appoint a well-being governor. And I know many schools are doing this work as, at the moment, but it isn't something, again, that should be just a tick box exercise. It needs to be something meaningful. It needs to ideally be somebody who really has an interest in this area and wants to work with the head to find ways to improve the well-being for all of the adults in the building. Um, and as I said, it needs to start with an audit, preferably, and it need, needs to be an action plan. And teachers need to have their own individual well-being plans, um, you know. But but it should not be um, a stick to beat them with. Um, I know I've heard a lot of stuff coming from schools where teachers have well-being targets, and I'm not Yikes. sure what I think about that. Seems to fly in just, the face of well-being. Um, no, it's yeah. just, it's just a thing to jump through, you know. Mm. <laughs> so um, yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, something that I mean, I, I've a relatively uh, long career in governance, and um, w one one specific project that that we did, we actually um, looked at the the widest possible definition of well being and workload mixed in, and some of yeah. what we elected to do was, you know, lightening admin burdens. You know, yeah. could could we afford to get somebody to do all of the photocopying so that you know staff weren't having to photocopy their own resources these these oh. kinds of questions and sometimes it can it can be things that don't immediately strike you as as being a well-being issue but 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 actually can make a big difference yeah the truth is that every little helps you know it really does but what i would go back to what i said earlier about how um governments and parents and others need to understand the role better up until around about 2007, all of the research into school leader well-being from around the world was focused only on workload and on, you know, the, the, the length of hours that school leaders worked and the amount of duties they had to do. And there was very little focus upon the emotional demands of the role. And that changed in 2007 with some wonderful people working in the UK, um, you know, the research field changed and what we know now is actually workload demand is only really maximum 50 percent maybe less for some heads and it's actually the emotional demands of the job especially as the mental health issues with students you know with pupils increases um and in the 
situation we find ourselves in at the moment with COVID, the emotional demands are just as, if not more, challenging than the logistical kind of problems that people are solving on a day-to-day basis. And so it, finding ways for people to feel emotionally supported as well as supported with those, the, you know, the kind of day-to-day tasks of the running of a school. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, and I think it's interesting because I think from the head teacher's perspective, a lot of it, um, as you were just alluding to there, it rests around the fact that they they feel that they need to make all of the decisions and the, the buck ultimately stops with them um and then interestingly from kind of conversations that i've had and we did a we did a podcast um i think it was earlier in the year with nfer on their research about autonomy that actually for teachers they want to be able to make slightly more decisions about you know what cpd they're doing and and their their targets and all these other sorts of things so it's sort of balancing out in some ways um that decision making across the school it is, and to be honest with you, now it's interesting, of all the articles that I've published on my blog over the last about four or five months, the one that had the least readership was one where I talked about having a sense of over-responsibility. And I think it's something that people don't want to hear, but actually I know from my own experience that sometimes we do have a sense of over-responsibility, feeling that we're responsible for everything that happens within that school building, regardless of whether or not we have control over it. And sometimes we get into overdrive where we can't stop ourselves from feeling responsible for everything. And sometimes that can become quite addictive. And sometimes it's also very validating for us and it helps us to feel needed. And sometimes we can be our own worst enemy. And one of the things I do when I work with school leaders is help them to recognize when that's happening. It doesn't happen to everyone. And that actually, you're right, sometimes distributing the leadership to those around us is actually a really good thing because it empowers others and it helps them with their stress levels and helps them with their validation and helps them to just generally feel better about themselves, you know, a sense of accomplishment. Um, And so sometimes we just have to be prepared to let stuff go and, you know, give control over to others. And I think sometimes heads can be their own worst enemy in that regard, but I'm not very popular when I say that, I'm afraid. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm probably similarly un- unpopular, but a kind of observation that I've made having um, worked with sort of companies and different types of organisations as well as school leaders and schools is, you know, oftentimes the people in charge, say the CEO of a company, they can't actually do all of the jobs of all of the people who work in that business, for the sake of argument. And and so that they have to give more trust to those people to get on and, and do their thing. And they're happy with a relatively kind of surface level understanding of some aspects of the school, uh, the business. And I think for, for, for school leaders and working with teachers and having been through that process themselves, sometimes it can be quite hard to let go and, and, and think, yeah. well, that person's done it in that way and that's fine. You just sort of default thinking, well, how would I have done it? Would I have done it differently? And as you say, if you're feeling that well, over-responsibility. You're absolutely right. I mean, I was helped with that by going and working in a massive school. Mm. And I couldn't do everything myself. And I considered, in, the, in, in a smaller school as a head, I considered my role was to provide the teachers with everything they needed in order to do their jobs well. Because if teachers were happy then the students were happy, then parents were happy, and everything looked after itself. But once I got to a much bigger school, I realised my job was actually keeping the leaders below me, who were effectively deputy head level, happy, 
so that they would keep the middle leaders happy, mm. so that the middle leaders would keep the teachers happy. And there were so many kind of layers between me and the teachers sometimes. Uh, a lot of what I was doing was actually um, senior leader training and middle leader training, just getting more removed. And I think in some ways that was helpful because mm. you do realise that you can't, you, you can't do it all. You know, you have to let other people... And it's so incredibly empowering. And vice principals who've worked with me have said, no one ever let us have this amount of, you know, responsibility and power and authority before. And it feels really good. Yeah, and, it, and as you say, it's it's seeing it from, from that perspective rather than thinking, oh, people will think I'm not working hard enough if I let other people do bits of my job. Yeah. You know, as well, Caroline, there's nothing wrong with saying that. Mm-hmm. It's like the other thing is that we feel that um, as leaders, we wear this leadership mask and that mask hides who we really are. And that actually we have to, and you know, and this again, it's, it's hard for women leaders because most of the ways that we've seen leadership done in the past, you know, when we were at school, for example, our head teacher was probably a man. And, um, you know, we've seen leadership done in a very different way. And female leadership styles are often different. And we feel that we have to wear this leadership mask where we're not showing ourselves or our true face but we're pretending to be somebody else and actually just really being ourselves, losing that leadership mask and being open about our vulnerabilities and saying to our staff, well, I've, you know, to be honest with you, I'd really like to empower you all and let you all do this. But there's part of me that thinks that you will think that I'm shirking if I do. What do you all think about that? Mm. You know, no harm in coming to the table with honesty. Because that's really how you build a following and that's how you build a strong and trusting environment within your, within your team in school is just by being honest and being yourself and not pretending to be this charismatic, strong leader who does it all like leaders of days of yore. You know, leadership's changing and we don't need to be like that anymore, in my opinion. And, and we can all spend a lot of time worrying about what other people are thinking. And as you say getting it out there in the uh, in the open like that and actually having a discussion then you know <laughs> well, save done, yourself uh, time worrying yeah I've done um a training working towards a master's in positive psychology and you know one of the things that I've learned is that we are hardwired for negativity our brain is kind of wired to be negative and those thousands and thousands and thousands of thoughts that we have every day about 80 percent of them are negative and so it's actually human nature to be worrying all the time about what people are thinking about you and, you know, getting that out in the open and just talking honestly about it is actually really transformational in a school environment. You know, I have done that. And um, if you are prepared to be vulnerable with your staff, it means they are being invited to be vulnerable themselves. And then suddenly everyone opens up and is much more honest about their worries and fears and all of that kind of, all of those kind of relationship difficulties that we often have in schools become much lighter and less because we have positive relationships and trusting relationships built on openness and vulnerability. Yeah, really, really good advice there. And is there anything else you'd like to say to our listeners in closing? Um. Well, I think probably for school leaders, it would be 
it is important that you prioritize yourself because if you don't, probably no one else will. And you mustn't feel that you're failing or you mustn't feel guilty because what happened to me can happen to anyone. And so it's important that you prioritize yourself because actually by prioritizing yourself, you are putting everyone else first anyway. The research shows that. So don't wait for permission to put yourself first. I think the other thing is don't be afraid to ask for help. If you feel that you can't go to the governors and ask for help, and you can't go to your staff and ask for help, then seek, you know, connections within your local area, because I bet you that whatever it is that you're going through, there'll be a hundred other school leaders within 30 miles of where you work that are going through the same thing. So find ways to reach out to them. And if you have other school leaders that you already have networks with, use them. There's no shame in it. They'll be so glad that you reached out. And I think for the governors who are listening, you know, there's there are many reasons why this is important from a strategic perspective and needs to be taken seriously and needs to be looked at um, through a strategic lens rather than just a yoga and chocolate lens, really. I think that's my message. Well, thank you so much, Helen. A lot to think about there. Really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. And thank you very much for listening. Key Voices is produced by The Key, giving education leaders the knowledge to act. Members of The Key for School Leaders can access hundreds of articles on the latest issues in education at thekeysupport.com. And please tell us what you think of the podcast. Rate, review and subscribe or email me at caroline.doherty at thekeysupport.com with your thoughts and suggestions.